Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Once again this Sunday, I want to borrow from the hymn that we just sang for my sermon title this morning, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And that's the theme in this next section in Hebrews chapter 9. I want to begin reading in the 15th verse, read down to the 23rd verse. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 23. And for this cause, he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. May God add his blessings to the reading of his holy word today. Perhaps you've wondered as we've studied through Hebrews, what is the relevance of this book to where we live today? I mean, after all, it's an ancient book. It describes things that happened 1,500 years ago, long before you and I were on the scene. And we wonder because it is a foreign world. It's like stepping into a foreign country when we step into the book of Hebrews. And we wonder, what does this have to say to us today? And I suggest that this is a very relevant book. It's very contemporary in its message. You may know that there are professing Christian traditions that still practice many of the elaborate ceremonies in their worship that are very similar to the ceremonies under the old law. And those who teach salvation by works are basically teaching salvation by keeping the law, that you can keep the law in order to be saved. So there are many people around professing Christians who teach salvation by works. Also, some of you may be familiar with uh, Armstrongism, uh, the tradition that was popularized by Herbert W. Armstrong and by Garner Ted Armstrong, his son, for many years. And uh, there is an entire group of professing Christians who are followers of what is called uh, Armstrongism. And Armstrong basically popularized the bringing of the Jewish culture over into the Christian economy. And the emphasis on the Jewish feasts and festivals and sacrifices is the lion's share of what Armstrongism teaches. 
And then there is an entire theology of the future. The technical term for it is eschatology, the doctrine of last things. There's an entire theology called dispensationalism that was popularized by the Left Behind series. Some of you may remember the books and the movie that came out some years ago, the Left Behind series. This theology or method of interpreting the Bible relies heavily on the distinction between Israel and the church. They say that God is still dealing with the nation of Israel and that the church is separate and that Israel has the preeminence, that they're the most important, but the church is sort of an afterthought. And of course, I've tried to establish as we've studied through Hebrews that the church does not replace Israel, but it fulfills it. The church is the Israel of God, the spiritual Jew. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3, We are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Romans 2.29 says, He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew which is one inwardly. This is how God defines the true Israel of God. My beloved, the church is the fulfillment that is, they were living in prospect. We are living, my friends, in the reality of the coming of the Messiah. And we know that Jesus has fulfilled the law. So one of the reasons this is so important is because of Armstrongism, dispensationalism, Roman Catholic ceremonies, salvation by works ideas. And then probably one of the most prevalent unorthodox Christian traditions these days is what is known as the Hebrew Roots movement. You may or may not have heard of this, but many non-denominational churches are subscribing to the Hebrew Roots movement. And the idea that is being promoted is that we need to recover our Jewish roots. Instead of just focusing on Christianity, we need to go back and repeat many of the festivals, the feast days. We need to start calling God by the Hebrew or the Yiddish names of Yahushua or Yahweh. We need to get away from Jehovah and Jesus. These Western pronunciations, there is a whole group of these people and they are everywhere. It seems like this is taking Christian circles in mass in many respects today, the Hebrew Roots Movement. So the, I, I cite all of these to say the book of Hebrews is very relevant where we live. Now what we've studied thus far is we've been looking at this dominant section of the book in which he talks about Christ's better priesthood. You know, the word better is one of the key words in the book. And this better priesthood has given us a better covenant. This better priesthood is established on a better covenant. And this better covenant is based on a better sacrifice. And that's what we saw in our reading in verse 23. The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And what was the better sacrifice? It's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. You'll notice back in the 12th verse of this reading, it says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Blood redemption, my beloved, is the heart of the gospel. And the background of this reading today the first 10 verses in this ninth chapter, the apostle remembers the Day of Atonement, one of the high festival days in the Jewish economy. The Day of Atonement 
was the day in which the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And he offered sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And it's that imagery that he's using now when he says Christ has entered into the holiest by his own blood. Christ is our high priest. And just like the high priest under the law went into the most holy place and he alone could go in there one day a year, Jesus Christ has entered once for all into the very presence of God, the innermost sanctum, by his own blood. Notice it didn't say he entered with his own blood. It's not that he carried a container of blood with him, but he entered on the merits of the finished work that he had accomplished on Calvary's cross. So where is Jesus today, our priest? He's in the very presence of God, in heaven itself, the real holy of holies. And because he's there, you and I have a mediator As our reading says in verse 15, he's the mediator of the New Testament. We have a go-between. You see, here's the basis of everything we've been studying in Hebrews. Man needs to approach to God, but he can't. We can't just come into the presence of God. We need someone to represent us, right? The Israelites could not go into the presence of God. Only the high priest as their representative could go in under the old law. And Jesus is our great high priest. But here's the good news of Hebrews. Because of Him, now every one of us in worship can come into the presence of God. Even the common people like you and me can come into the Holy of Holies through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can draw nigh to God. My beloved, that's the greatest benefit that has ever been afforded to mortal man is to come close to God, to get near to God. Do you want to be near to God? If we want to be able to draw nigh to Him and have fellowship with Him and commune with Him freely, the only way we can do that is through nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, if you want to study the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, go back to Leviticus 16 and 17. You know, there are some books in the Bible I feel sorry for, and the book of Leviticus is one of them. If you've ever started a Bible reading plan, you've read through Genesis And it's pretty exciting with its drama and its stories. And Exodus, that's exciting also. But then you get to the book of Leviticus and many people check out in their Bible reading when they get to the book of Leviticus because it's full of all of these elaborate details about how to dress the priest and how to set up the worship of the tabernacle in the Old Testament and when to wash your hands and what parts of the animal to offer under this offering and what parts to burn And what parts belong to the priest? And you say, it's just too complicated for me to wrap my mind around. What does it all mean? But you know, the word Levi, you know, the Levites, Leviticus, you see Levi as the root of that word. The tribe of Levi were the priests. And the book of Leviticus is like a manual for how the priests were to make their offerings and conduct their sacrifices. It also gives several civil laws for cleansing, what you should eat, what you couldn't eat, what was kosher. You know, the Jews could only eat animals that had a split hoof, that chewed the cud, but they could not eat catfish and hogs. (laughs) And all of that detail is given to you in the book of Leviticus. But if we're not careful, we're going to miss some very beautiful types and symbols and, and figures in the book of Leviticus if we just skip over it. 
because the book in Leviticus 16 and 17 tells us the importance of blood in serving the Lord. Now, in Leviticus 16, you have the detailed instructions for recognizing or observing the Day of Atonement. And they were to make two offerings on the Day of Atonement. Remember, that's the one day a year the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. On that day, they were to make two offerings. They were to make a sin offering, which consisted of two goats, and a burnt offering, which consisted of either a bullock or a ram. The sin offering speaks of the doctrine of expiation, that is, the removal of sin. The burnt offering speaks to us or reminds us of the wrath of God. It speaks of propitiation, the doctrine that teaches the removal of God's anger against sin. So sin has been removed. God's wrath has been removed against sin on the Day of Atonement, or that's what the picture prefigures. And these two goats are interesting. You probably heard the word scapegoat. This is where that term came from. The two goats, one was to be slain. He was called the Lord's goat. The priest would cast lots. We would call it drawing straws. And on whichever goat the lot fell was to be the Lord's goat. It was to be slain as a sin offering. The other goat was the scapegoat who was to be saved alive and released at the hands of a fit man, it says, who would take that goat out into the wilderness and release him, free him into an uninhabited land where he would wander off never to be seen again. Now there are some beautiful pictures in these two goats. The Lord's goat was slain and the blood of that goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat, then on the horns of the altar where the goat was slain. And then the blood was to be sprinkled on the people. Now you talk about a messy scene. See, this wasn't clean and white and pure. I mean blood everywhere. Blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. Blood sprinkled on the horns of the altar. And then the priest was to ceremoniously sprinkle the blood over the people. You say, well, that wasn't very clean. It's not a matter of hygiene that they're concerned with here. There is symbolism here, rich symbolism about the importance of a blood sacrifice. And after that, then he would take the scapegoat and present him before the people, and the priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat, and he would confess over that goat all the sins of the nation, and then send him away again by the hands of a fit man. I like that expression, a fit man. You know, the one who carried our sins away, my friends, was a fit man, right? Jesus Christ was a fit man. He was capable. He was qualified. He was perfect. A fit man, he would take him into the wilderness and release him again, never to be seen again, into an uninhabited land. We'll come back to that, the Lord willing, in just a moment. Then as you move into Leviticus 17, the 17th chapter of Leviticus, after giving us this detail about the Day of Atonement, which is the subject again in Hebrews 9. He talks about the sanctity of blood. Blood was considered sacred by God. In fact, some of the provisions or prohibitions that are given in Leviticus 17 are these. If a man slew an ox or a lamb or a goat without offering that animal in worship to the Lord, he just slew it and left it by the side of the road, That would result in his exile 
says Leviticus 17, for he hath shed blood. God took the shedding of blood seriously. Another provision was that they were not to offer a blood sacrifice to any idol, to Baal or to Molech or to Chemosh or to any of these pagan deities. They were not to offer a blood sacrifice. They were to offer blood sacrifices only to the Lord. And if they offered it to an idol, Leviticus 17 tells us it would result in their exile or death. And then the third thing it says in Leviticus 17 is God prohibited them from eating blood. Now that was a common practice associated with pagan worship. Even a hunter of wild game who killed a beast or a fowl in the wild was to pour out the blood and on the ground and cover it with dust before he ate the meat. That was one of God's provisions in the law. And if he didn't do that, then he was to be exiled or even put to death for Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh is the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. What happens if you were to drain the blood from your body? You would lose your life, wouldn't you? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood stands for sacrificial death. You say, Brother Mike, why is blood so important in God's service under the Old Covenant and even under the New Covenant? Because sin is a capital offense against God. Sin is such a serious offense against the Creator that justice demands life for life. Sin is so serious, my friends, that it cannot be removed by a bloodless offering. You may remember that was the mistake Cain made. When Cain and Abel offered their sacrifice to the Lord, Abel offered what? A lamb, a firstling of his flock. And to offer a lamb required that he shed blood. But Cain brought the fruit of his ground, a harvest that he had taken from his field, and presented his vegetables to the Lord. No blood was shed there, and God had respect to Abel and his offering because he offered it by faith, but he didn't have respect to Cain and his offering. It was a bloodless sacrifice. Sin is so serious. It's such a capital offense against the Creator who made us, who gave us life, that it requires more than just a bloodless offering to atone for it. It requires life for life because of the holiness of God and the heinousness of sin. Romans 6.23 puts it like this, for the wages of sin is what? Death. This is what sin demands. This is the payment that it demands, death. Sin, my beloved, has brought death into the world. And therefore, to atone for our sin, blood had to be shed. One had to die sacrificially. And this better sacrifice, again, that Hebrews 9 is talking about in the 23rd verse, was made to God. Listen to verse 14 of Hebrews 9. For if the blood of bulls and goats, and again, they offered bullocks and two goats, or goats, on the Day of Atonement. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, that is, if it has a ceremonial benefit so that you can worship God, how much more, notice the comparative statement, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit, watch this, offered himself without spot to whom? To God. And by the way, 
I want to say that there is never any verse in the New Testament that says Jesus offers himself to the sinner. You know, there are many well-meaning, sincere Christian people around us that preach that the Lord is offering salvation to you and all you have to do is accept it. The only time the Bible speaks of Christ offering himself, it says he offered himself not to you and me, but he offered himself to God. Just as the high priest had to make his blood sacrifices offering to God, so by friends, Jesus made the Lamb of God, when he laid down his life, his offering was made without spot to God. Indeed, this better sacrifice was made to God. Now, in the few moments remaining, I want to give you five ways, and I'm not going to dwell on any of these at length, five ways in which the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of bulls and of goats. And we've already talked about one a few weeks ago when we preached on cleansing the conscience. The blood of Jesus, as verse 14 says, purges our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The law could never do that. The sacrifices of animals never could get on the inside. It simply made the person ceremonially clean, but it didn't do anything for the heart. But the blood of Jesus is better because it cleanses the guilty conscience. Secondly, the blood of Jesus achieved an eternal benefit. Notice in this passage the repetition of the word eternal. Verse 12, He entered into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. Verse 14, He offered Himself through the eternal Spirit. Eternal redemption, eternal Spirit. And then verse 15, They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. May I say, my beloved, that one of the great reasons that the blood of Jesus was superior to the blood of animal sacrifices under the Old Covenant is because it achieved an eternal benefit. It didn't merely have a temporary benefit to people. You know, those priests offered a sacrifice this year. What happened next year? They had to offer another one, right? And the next year they had to come in on the Day of Atonement and offer another one. And the next year, another. For 1,500 years, his work was never done. He had to offer the sacrifice over and over and over again. Jesus Christ, my beloved, offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And that one offering achieved an eternal benefit for you and me. I'm glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus doesn't have to continue to be offered. Somebody says, I believe in the perpetual offering of the blood of Jesus. And you may know that that's what the service known as the Mass is, that it's a repeat sacrifice. Every week, we're going to sacrifice Jesus again because we need to keep making the sacrifice in order to make sure that the blood has benefit. I'm telling you, dear friends, He offered that sacrifice one time. And that sacrifice has an eternal application. When he entered back into heaven, he had obtained, notice the ED on that word, he had obtained eternal redemption for us. When Jesus died on the cross, through the shedding of his precious blood, he redeemed us to God by his own blood. He redeemed a people out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. That is, that blood was effective in sufficient to cover the sins of every one of God's elect who has ever lived, lives now, or will live in the future. 
It covered both your sins of omission and your sins of commission. Now, I don't know how many sins you've committed in your life. I don't even know how many I've committed. But I'm sure, my friends, that it's beyond my ability to calculate. But I'm so glad to tell you that when Jesus entered into heaven, that sacrifice doesn't need to be made again because that one sacrifice has obtained. And to obtain something means what? It means to secure it, to possess it. Jesus, when he entered into heaven, did not make men redeemable so that they might finally be saved if they'll add something to it. He obtained eternal redemption for us. He achieved the work which he had come into this world to perform. Jesus Christ had finished that work when he went back to heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So the blood of Jesus is better than animal blood in the terms of the fact it can get on the inside of you. It can cleanse your guilty conscience. It can give you peace. It's superior in terms of the fact it achieved an eternal benefit once for all time. And thirdly, it's better because it's retroactive. Notice verse 15. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption, listen to this language, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What he's telling us in this verse is that not only did the blood of Jesus secure our eternal redemption, not only did it do something for us right now, but it reached back under the First Testament, under the Old Testament, and it covered the sins of God's people who lived back then, as well as those who would live after the cross. It was retroactive for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. I've had people ask me, and you've probably heard this question before, if Jesus died on the cross, how were people saved who lived before the cross? They were saved, my beloved, the same way that those of us who've lived after the cross are saved, by the precious blood of Jesus and nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, when He died on Calvary, that river of blood flowed both directions. And it covered the sins of God's people in former times, and it covered the sins of God's people in these days. Zechariah 14, verse 8, taking its cue from the 13th chapter when he says, there shall be a fountain opened. The prophet says, in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of the house of David for sin and uncleanness. It's a fountain filled with blood that would be opened Zechariah 14.8 says it like this, And in that day living water shall flow forth from Jerusalem. Now that's where Jesus was crucified. Half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be. Do you know what that verse is teaching? It's teaching that from Mount Calvary, that sacred flood from Jesus' vein covered the sins of God's people in the former, in front of the cross. That is, it covered you and me and all of God's children that have lived since Jesus died. But it also covered those in the hinder sea. You see, both in the former and the hinder sea. That is, this blood flows both directions. And it says, in summer and in winter shall it be. It's not just seasonal in its efficacy. But it's the same. The power of the cleansing blood of Jesus is the same in all seasons, in summer and in winter shall it be. This is what Romans 3.25 is talking about 
when the Apostle Paul says, God has set forth Jesus Christ. That word means he's foreordained him to be a propitiation. There's that technical term that means wrath remover. The one who would remove God's wrath. God in the covenant before time began foreordained his son to be the one who would deal with sin through faith in his blood. And whose faith is this? We're going to see it in just a moment. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now again, this language may be a little too technical for you to just wrap your mind around, but here's what he's saying. Is God righteous to save people who lived in the Old Testament to forgive their sins, even though the price hadn't been paid? Now you say, well, God wouldn't be just to save people before the cross because the price wasn't paid until Calvary. How were they taken to heaven? Because God saw the blood of Jesus and through God's faith in the blood of His Son, through faith in His blood, God went ahead and took them to heaven knowing that the sacrifice would be made. Listen to the text again. To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance, through the patience of God. God was patient with their sins because He saw that the price would be paid. He had set Jesus Christ forth to be the propitiation through faith in His blood. And here's the way I illustrate that. Perhaps you've gone down to the mortgage company before and signed papers to purchase a house, maybe some land. Or maybe you've signed with a lending agency to purchase a new automobile. And you've agreed to pay so much a month, you know, for 363 years, you know, at exorbitant interest rates. Do you have to wait until the final payment is made before you take that car home or before you move into the house? No, because you've made a covenant, right? You've given your word and that loan has been secured. And you can take the vehicle home and start using it or you can move into the house right now even though it may be 30 years before the last payment is made on your mortgage contract because of a covenant. That's exactly what this verse is teaching. God set Jesus Christ forth in the covenant. He foreordained Him to be the one who would make the sin offering. And therefore, He forgave the sins of those who lived before the cross because He had faith. That is, He saw the sacrifice that would be made and He knew that He couldn't lie. And that Jesus, the Son of God, would be true to His covenant assignment. God saved those people, my beloved, the same way He saves us. You see, it's when a person's system of salvation is not right that they have to come up with different ways of saving people in different periods of time. Somebody says God saves the little infant that dies in infancy one way by innocency. He saves the unevangelized heathen another way on ignorance. He saved the people in the Old Testament by keeping the law. And He saves you and me by grace. I'm telling you, dear friends, everybody who's ever saved is saved the same way. John 3.5 says, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Everyone who's born again is born by the sovereign operation of the Spirit of God, which is based on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So God saved them in the Old Testament just like He saved us. That's why Revelation 13.8 speaks of Jesus as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In covenant terms, Jesus Christ stood as a lamb slain 
from the foundation of the world, even though his blood hadn't actually been shed until he died on Calvary's cross. And I'm telling you, my beloved, that blood, again, has eternal and perpetual benefit. I love the third verse of the hymn we sing by William Cooper that says, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Aren't you glad to believe, my beloved, that the blood of Jesus Christ will never lose its cleansing efficacy, its redeeming value, until the last child of grace is quickened by the Spirit and saved to sin no more. And what a blessing that will be in heaven that we'll not sin anymore and it'll all be due to the precious blood of Jesus. And then fourthly, not only is the blood of Jesus better in terms of the fact it cleanses the conscience, it achieved an eternal benefit, and it's retroactive. But the blood of Jesus is a better sacrifice because it ratified the everlasting covenant. Notice he mentions the word inheritance in verse 15. He speaks of the blood of Jesus, which redeemed those who had committed transgressions under the First Testament. He says that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And then he says, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. And interestingly, the word testament here is a different word from the concept of covenant that he's been using. It's very similar. I mean, covenants and testaments are first cousins. They're very closely aligned. But there's one difference. A covenant does not necessarily involve death or the shedding of blood. You may remember David and Jonathan made a covenant when they were in the woods before David fled from Saul. They made a pact, a treaty, a covenant, and they pledged to honor the other person's family in the event one of them died. But there was no bloodshed with that covenant. Marriage is a covenant, but there's not necessarily blood that's shed shouldn't be <laughs> when two people are married, right? But every testament, the Greek word diateke, is the word that is used here for testament, and it speaks of the last will in testament. Now, some of you have written a will. You've gone to your attorney, and you have composed your last will in testament. But you know, that will is really of no more value than the paper it's written on right now. In fact, it's of no effect. It's not in force. Until what? Until the death of the one who initiated the will, the contract. Now, that's the word that's used here. For a testament, he says, is of no value, no force, while men are living. It's a force only after men are dead. Where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. God has an everlasting testament that he made before the world began in which he fashioned a scheme of redemption and chose a people as his own. And Jesus agreed to come as a stipulation of that covenant to pay the sin debt. And God has pledged himself through his immutable counsel and oath that he cannot lie. He's promised eternal life to all that he loved. And Jesus has secured that on the cross. But they've not all been born again yet. May I say, dear friends, that that covenant was ratified. It was made of force. It was brought into effect. In other words, when Jesus Christ, the testator, laid down his life, the blood of Jesus guarantees the disposition of God's covenant. 
and his estate to every one of his heirs. And that means, my beloved, the fact that he lives right now guarantees that the estate of God that has been promised to you will be probated and distributed. You know, Jesus is not only the testator who died to put the will into effect, but he rose from the dead to be the executor of his own estate. Isn't that wonderful? You know, usually the testator, the one who made the will, when he dies, he has another who's appointed as the executor or executrix to uh, probate the estate to make sure it's distributed properly. But I'm telling you that the Lord Jesus was the one who made the will. He died to put it into effect. And then he rose from the dead to make sure that every provision of the covenant is distributed to his heirs, their eternal inheritance. Now, you may not have much in this world, but I'm telling you, you have an eternal inheritance. You are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And you are wealthy beyond description. Heaven is yours. Eternal life is yours. Isn't that wonderful to think about? You will not cease to exist when you die in this world. In fact, you will just be ushered into your eternal inheritance that was purchased for you by the blood of Jesus. And then finally, this morning, verse 22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Almost all things. What wasn't? The heart, the conscience. The law could not cleanse sin. It just ceremonially, on the outside, had a benefit to allow people to come close and to worship God. But the law could not actually deal with the sin debt. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission, and that word means forgiveness. Why is the blood of Jesus better than the blood of bulls and goats? Because it actually secured forgiveness of your sins. Now I don't know if there's a blessing any more precious than forgiveness of sins. And if you've ever been convicted in your conscience, that you are guilty of violating God's holy law and you felt the condemnation of that, my friends, you know what a blessing it is to trust in the blood of Jesus as the one who has forgiven you, who has just wiped the slate clean, forgiven you all of your trespasses. Forgiveness. Micah 7 verse 18 asks the question, Who is a pardoning God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. You know what forgiveness is? It, again, it's wiping the slate clean. I was trying to teach one of my children when they were small what forgiveness was. And we were homeschooling at the time, and I, on the chalkboard I drew a big X. I said, here is Amber's report card. X, F, X. You know, you get all of these red marks, all of these bad grades, for your sins, telling the truth, X. You know, being humble, X. Living a pure life, X. I said, how do you like that report card? She said, I don't like it, Daddy. Then I took the eraser, and I erased it, and I erased it thoroughly so that there wasn't even a hint that there was a bad mark. And I said, now here's your report card. Do her name again. Check marks, check marks, check marks. Telling the truth, perfect. Being humble, perfect. Being selfless, perfect. How do you like that? She says, I love it. I said, that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. He just wiped the slate clean. All of the red marks on your report card are removed. 
through the red blood of Jesus. And you have been given, my beloved, a perfect mark, completely righteous before God by virtue of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has procured forgiveness. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of your sins. No wonder Paul could say in Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Because Christ was slain as the better sacrifice for God's covenant people, my friends, their sins have been carried away into a land not inhabited, like that scapegoat. There was not even another animal in that land. There was not a man in that land. There was no one to see or to discover the scapegoat who bore on his head the sins of the whole nation. I'm telling you, all the covenant people of God, their sins have been carried away into the land of forgetfulness. Psalm 103.12 says they've been separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah chapter 38 verse 17 says, Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. If they're behind his back, he doesn't look at them. Micah 7.19 says, Thou hast cast our sins into the depths of the sea, the deepest ravine in the ocean, my friends. God has placed our sins not only behind His back, separated as far as east is from the west, but in the depths of the sea. Job chapter 14, verse 17 says, My transgressions are sealed up and sewn in a bag. Isaiah 44.22 says, They've been blotted out as a thick cloud. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, he says, Thy sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Do you know why God has forgotten your sins? Not because He's forgetful, but because the blood of Jesus has satisfied Him. And nothing but the blood of Jesus could do that. I close with Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, where the prophet says, As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant... The blood of thy covenant. I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. How were the prisoners delivered out of the pit of depravity? By the blood of the covenant. And then he says, Turn ye to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Now we're still prisoners, but we're prisoners of Jesus Christ. We're not prisoners of sin anymore. Now we belong to him because we've been liberated and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That fountain that was opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness has washed us whiter than snow. I'm so thankful today for the precious blood of Jesus Christ.